Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We need your help. If you have a quick minute and you can review, rate, or share The Nuanced Life, please, please, that would be so wonderful. We want more and more people to find the podcast and ratings and reviews inside the podcast app really help that. Also, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can follow us on all our social media channels, and we would love to chat more in depth about the topics on the show. Um, We're pretty active on social media, so follow us along. And part of the reason that's so important to us is because listener feedback always makes what we do here better. So in our first block today, we're going to talk about a message from a listener. And then our main segment, as Sarah has advertised on Pansy Politics, is going to be all about sex and And bad sex and good sex. And and I'm just going to take the the moment because we can't pay for the song. and I'm sure it's really expensive. I'll just sing it. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Oh, my God. It's been in my head ever since we decided we're going to talk about that because that song is an earworm. Also, it's awesome. Salt and pepper forever. (laughs) And we'll end, as we always do, with something a little bit inspiring to get through the rest of our weeks with. So we heard from Julia about the fact that we've been talking about Whole30 a lot, which I firmly intended not to do. For many of the reasons that Julia mentions in her message, um, I, I think that we are entrenched in a diet culture, as she said. And so that's why I really try not to talk about it. And it has just been a big part of my life. And we have done so. So here's what she said. I would love to hear your thoughts on a movement that I that I find to be a lot more positive and liberating than a diet. One reason you should consider this is some people try the diet Whole30 you are promoting on the podcast, and when it does not work, as most diets do not, they might feel like something is wrong with them, when in reality, it's because the diet is too restrictive. So while I appreciate the nuanced discussion regarding dieting, I'd love to hear you examine another option that is available to women, intuitive eating and health at every size. I completely agree with you, Julia. I have several people in my life, fortunately, who have some expertise on those subjects. So we'll do a longer discussion of those in future podcasts. I do want to say today that I'm almost finished. I've almost made it 30 days on Whole30. And I did not start Whole30 to become thin because thin is not available to me. And I have made peace with that in my life. So whatever the hell does thin mean? I don't even know what that word means, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to be thin. I am not going to lose a ton of weight, probably. Um, Certainly not in 30 days. I did it more because I am at a place where I want to focus on my health. 
I think that because my body has not been something that I've just been able to conquer, like I, I want to look a certain way, so I'll work hard enough to get there. That that just hasn't been true for me. And so I've always put it off. I'll think about my health later. I'll think about my health down the road. After I do these things, then I'll worry about that thing. And that thing I've never wanted to worry about because it has made me feel like something's wrong with me, like Julia is saying. I feel like I have done enough work in myself and enough yoga and just enough reflection generally to mostly be past that. And now I am looking at my age and my family history and thinking I need to prioritize my health. And so whatever that means for my weight, it means, but I do know that taking sugar out of my diet is important because there is a lot of diabetes in my family. I do know that just focusing on what I eat and how I eat it has really good results for me. Um, even if no weight comes off, there has been a downside for me of whole 32 that I'll talk about in a second, but I, I, I just wanted to say that before your reaction, Sarah. Well, the first thing the, I totally understand where she's coming from, but here's where I think we need to take this nuanced conversation. Okay. First of all, whole 30 is not a diet. I bristle at that term because they, the people that started it are insistent and to a almost obsessive degree that this is not a diet. This is not about forcing yourself into these strict restrictions so that you can lose weight for a temporary period of time. And that's not how I experienced Whole30 either. For me, what, and I think this is sort of how they, they pitch it. And I think it's true. Whole30 was like an intervention in the Western diet. I needed an intervention. So here's where I think the conversation needs to be pulled apart. And I think it's very difficult, but I think it's important to try, which is I think that there is a cultural message to women that you need to be thinner, the beauty standard, the fat shaming, all of that. I think that is, let's put that in one container. And then I think there is simultaneously an an huge multi-million dollar industry built on a diet that you can watch right now as it marches across the globe into other continents that is built around sugar and preservatives and it makes people unhealthy, and it makes them gain weight, and it is terrible. And so I think that there is, a des- I have a desire to be very honest about the negative impact of our Western diet, particularly sugar, and it's hard to talk about that without also saying, without also getting into that other bucket and making people feel crappy if they eat sugar or making it sound like if you have if you have weight you want to lose or you have weight because of this diet, that makes you a bad person. And like we have got to piece those things apart because they are very, very different. First of all, if you eat sugar or you have a weight problem because of sugar, you're not a bad person. You're just freaking living in this world that we've allowed an industry that competes over a finite amount of calories we should consume in a day to win and to hide the science behind sugar. Like I could go off on a whole thing on sugar and like, I eat sugar. I just want to be abundantly clear about that as well. I eat sugar. But, you know, I just I think that's the difficult part in this conversation. And the other thing that other level of nuance I'd like to add that sort of melds those together is there was like the most amazing article in The New York Times. And the woman came on the Daily Podcast and talked about it, which is said for some people. And she talked about Oprah. For some people, a diet is not always a bad thing. And they 
like that the, the relationship with food for them. It's not about shaming. Like I think diet has become a, a totally negative word. And for some people, it it, it helps it's to think about food in that way and to think about some guidelines within what they're eating. You know, it's all it's all Gretchen Rubin know thyself. And some people need that. And so I think we also need to be be careful to not just be like all diets are bad, rock. Because some people need that too. And I mean, it's very complicated because you have society, you have an industry, you have gender dynamics, and then you have our own personal personalities and perspectives in this big giant mix and it's really hard and but you know I just think that you can talk about like whole 30 and be body positive and be healthy at every size I mean whole 30 tells you repeatedly not to dare step on a scale they don't want you thinking about your weight at all like it's not about losing weight for them at all like they're very insistent on that point and so I just, you know, I think it's different. I understand the concerns about diets while at the same time thinking we need to allow space for people who do like to be on a diet. And then I think, you, like I said, you have this collision course between actual negative things. And I mean, that's the thing, right? The negativity of the Western diet for me personally is about an industry that hid the science and manipulated people while at the same time telling those people it's their fault. And that's great a bullish, and that's what we really need to talk about as far as healthy eating and health at every size and intuitive eating is this is not your fault. This is not a failure of willpower. This is bullish. Like, it's not a failure of willpower any more than smoking is a failure of willpower. That You have huge, huge forces at play here. And I think it's just important to be able to sort of piece that apart without people feeling attacked because that is not what this is about at all. Sorry, I went off for a while there. Well, I'm not going to be a Whole30 evangelist. It's not something that I think would benefit everyone. I think it's been beneficial for me at this very particular moment in my life. I think I've learned some good things from it. Uh, one of the things that I have learned from it that will that I think goes to your point, Sarah, about how we're all eating in this larger social context, it's just time is a huge force in all of this. It's the fact that shopping, planning, preparing, chewing, everything takes more time when you're eating mostly fruits and vegetables and meats. It just does. I mean, I am shocked by how fast bread is. Like, I look at bread now and think, you're just so easy. (laughs) And everything else is not easy. And so much of my adult life, particularly, has been defined by time. That that's been a really valuable lesson for me, that investing time in planning my meals for the week, grocery shopping, doing some prep work is time well spent for me. But that's possible because of the parameters of my life right now. It That would not always be true for me. Yeah. So I think that's been important. I'll tell you a negative side effect for me of the Whole30 has been recognizing that food was um, almost like a medication for me in some ways. Mm. We've talked a little bit about how I have fibromyalgia. I was diagnosed in 2007. So I started my journey with fibromyalgia taking Neurotin, which is not an opiate, but it works like one in some ways. That's my very rudimentary understanding. 
And so everything in my body was dulled a little bit. Nobody really understands fibromyalgia or knows what to do with it. And it's treated in a lot of different ways. And the way for me that people have tried to treat it is like using antidepressants, things like that. When that wasn't helpful, it became about dulling my nervous system so that mm. I didn't feel everything that I that I was feeling in my body, right? Because fibromyalgia creates a sense of pain without any underlying reason for that pain, which becomes such a mind game because you usually think of pain as your body trying to tell you something. And what does pain mean when it's not your body trying to tell you something? Mm. And so the answer from the medical profession has been, well, let's just try to not have you experience that pain. And those those drugs and that type of treatment is critical for some people to enable them to live functional lives. So please don't take anything I'm about to say as a criticism of people who take that treatment course, because some people absolutely do not have another alternative. When I started thinking about getting pregnant, I knew that I would have to come off of those drugs. And so I started and, and the truth was, I was kind of excited to come off of them because I hated the way that I felt when I was taking them. More specifically and accurately, I hated the way I didn't feel when I was taking them because not only did I not feel as much pain, I also didn't feel as much like joy or presence or anything. I just felt dulled in general. Mm. And so um, I started working with a massage therapist. I started doing yoga. I started doing all kinds of things to try to help me with pain management while I wouldn't be able to take pain management drugs. And I have never taken a pain management drug since. That's been important to me. And I've stayed consistent with my routine. And I have some good times and some bad times. I've had some bad times here on Whole30. Mm. And I'm realizing that caffeine and sugar have been standing in for me in a lot of ways and and that I have dulled some of my sensation. Now, the bonus side of that is I have felt good in some ways that I've not felt good. Mm. I'll sit down to eat a meal and I'll feel this like rush of something. Something is entering my body and it's terrific in a way that I never had before. But I also do. I am experiencing more pain than I have in a long time. And so there are lots of things to consider. I, I don't think that this is 100% positive for me, but it has been very instructive. And there are lots of aspects of it that I plan to keep in my life after these 30 days. But again, if I don't lose a pound because of any of that, that's okay with me. This right now for me is really about treating my body with more respect than I have. I have been avoiding it for a long time and and I'm ready to stop the avoidance. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that is the power of whole 30 in a lot of ways is because you can't, avo- like you said, like it just takes time to eat like that. You just can't avoid it. It's not something you can sort of default through. Um, and I think one of the most important things when you're talking about whole 30 is like the Gretchen Rubin thing, whether you're a moderator or an abstainer. Um, if you're an abstainer, you're going to love it. If you're a moderator like me, you're not going to like it. Like I talk very passionately about the whole 30 and I think it was a positive thing for me. I was so pissed by the end. I literally the very last night I made chocolate chip cookies because I was like, this is bullshit. I want to eat what I want to eat because I'm like a rebel and the the rules started to seem arbitrary after a certain point. And so I just was so angry by the end of it, even though I think it was a positive experience, mainly because the biggest thing for me is I just fell in love with eggs. I feel about eggs like I feel about Oprah. Like I just think they are the best humanity has to offer. I love them. I eat them every morning for breakfast now. It, that cha- It changed the way I eat breakfast forever, and it was hugely impactful and positive for me. I just love a hard-boiled egg. I just think it's the perfect food. And so that was like that changed forever, and I think I learned a lot of just about 
my own diet. It's just, you know, I, I like tracking. I like challenges, like the no shopping challenge. And so anything I think where, for me, my personality, anything where I can like challenge myself and take a hard look at like, okay, wait, is this working for me or am I just defaulting? I just like that. I like that experience and I think it's really positive. And I think our diets, because there's so so many of these huge factors playing on us. And I think, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I think that there are and sort of every kind of food camp, whether you're a eat whatever you want or you're a CrossFitter, or I think there is a way even sort of in defense of like sort of as a reaction to beauty culture, you can still default to sort of unhealthy behavior. Because I just think in reaction to beauty culture, if you're like, you know, forget this, I'm not going to respond to any of these cultural messages about beauty. I think that's great. I just think you have to understand that that opting out of that beauty culture doesn't automatically opt you out of our food culture, which is also really unhealthy. I guess that's my those two things. I just think you have to be super eyes wide open about how they interact with each other. And opting out of one doesn't automatically opt you out of the other. And so and I, I just think there's so much room for us as a culture to push back against this just super crap. And I think it's gotten better, but like super crappy food culture that we live in. And, you know, I, like I said, I think you can just look, look back. You don't even have to look back, look around right now. Like India has a huge obesity problem because why? Because this Western diet marched into Indian culture and you see it in South America and you see it in all these countries and I, in continents. And I just, it's so disturbing to me. And so I just think that that's, that was my biggest benefit of Whole30 is it really helped me just step out and be like, hold up, you know, I I still eat Kit Kats. I'm not mad at Kit Kats. But like, you know, I just think it's a really good for me, the way my personality and brain works to sort of take a moment and be like, not because it's a diet, because I was doing it to lose weight, just to be like, wait, hold on, how am I actually eating? Well, I think the thing about food culture is that it's rarely about food. Mm. It is about time. It's about money. It's about uh, community. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of think about what Weight Watchers is, yeah. especially in its heyday. Weight Watchers was very much about community, community, yep, more than anything else. Connection. I agree that. with you about eggs, but I, I also them. remember a time in my life when everyone said, "Oh, you can't eat eggs. There's so much cholesterol yeah, in eggs." I know. So it's really not about the food as much as it is about your relationship with your own body, your relationship with other people. And while the Western diet absolutely creates a crisis in our health, there are going to be large bodies. There's going to be body diversity in any culture, yes. and there should be, and there has been throughout history. Yes. And we sh- and that's what I love about the Health at Every Size movement. It says, hello, there are people who are fat, who do amazing things with their body, who yeah. are absolutely healthy, and mind your own business. And intuitive eating, I think, is about exactly the things that we've both tried to gain through Whole30. It's about that connection. I'm paying attention to what I'm eating, how I'm eating it, and how my body responds. So I'm honoring what my body needs at different points in time. So I don't think that either of us are in a different place than the place that Julia wrote to us about embracing. But I think she is right to note that we are in a cultural framework where... 
talking about any kind of eating program is very triggering for people. Yeah. Because we have all taken all of this. It, it, we're just Personally, such a mess around yeah. it, right? Carrying on our own shoulders as if it's our fault. Okay, so here's what I want to say. Either I'm going to get emails and people are going to be like, I do that too, or everybody's going to think I'm weird. But to your point about the health at every size. So my favorite sort of thought experiment is when I, especially when I'm at like a theme park, when there's like just, you know, the widest swath of humanity in front of me. I like to think about everybody naked. Go with me here. I'm going somewhere. Because if you look around at sort of any sort of mass public event and picture everyone naked, you realize how totally stupid mannequins are. Just dumb of the highest order. Because <laughs> in a when you have like this, you're around thousands of people there is maybe, and this is generous, maybe one person whose body looks like that. Maybe. But, like, there's way more patterns of sort of body size if we want to put in a mannequin of what the clothes are actually going to look like on people. Like, there are patterns, but they ain't the mannequin's body. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so funny when you look about it, you're like, how do we even get to that man? Like, I don't even know how we ended up with the mannequin body. Because, again, when you just look at human beings— nobody's close to that. Nobody. Not anywhere. Not close. No close. There's no closeness. I just don't. It's so funny to me because the human body comes in a wide array of shapes and sizes. So fascinating to me that we ended up with that ideal because it's not reflective of reality at all. Well, I didn't think you were going to mannequins from there, but I think that's really interesting We went to a parenting class at my church the other night. My church does this wonderful thing. They call it the gift of time. And the kids play. The parents have a short lesson. Then the parents have hours to go do grocery shopping or see a movie or whatever. You can pick the kids up later. It's free. It's wonderful. We really appreciate it. So we went to this little class, and it was about taking care of the body as a spiritual practice. Love it. And it was really interesting, and I think that – Part of what I came away with was, why do we hate our bodies so much? Because that's what the mannequins say. We don't like what we are. We need to strive for a different ideal. Because that's how they make money, because they have to sell us something. Yeah, and the way they sell it right. to us is saying, you're not good enough, but my product will make you so. It's such but a freaking racket. There has to be a reason that that sells, too. Because if we were all more comfortable, we would buy a totally different type of product. I think we're always going to be consumers. This is a theme you and I keep returning to. I think we're always going to be consumers. It's just what are we consuming? What is it about us that makes us so open to consuming things that say you are inadequate today, Mm. but this will make you better? Well, this is the thing that I think about. I struggle with. I find myself coming back to this with lots of institutions. Is it that way? Because of basic human psychology, or is it that way because there was one group, mainly white men, making the decisions, so there was only one perspective of how to sell things to people um, being perpetuated? Is it some combination of the two? I was going to say, why do we hate our bodies? Um, shout out to my mom, which is get, who's getting lots of shout outs on the podcast, because my mom, like my parents dieted my entire adolescence. Both of my parents lost over 100 pounds when I was probably a freshman in high school on this crazy bananas diet. They like warmed up big fat f- slices of lunch meat. I'm still traumatized. Those so gross. So they lost a ton of weight on it. Um, so they were always dieting. They were always talking about dieting. Somehow, I don't know how. Some, through, some, through some miracle, 
my mother was able to basically constantly be struggling her weight and having that, like I knew that, but never being hateful about her own body. Like my mom walked around naked all the time. Like one year for Christmas, I was like, all I want for Christmas is for you to stop walking around naked. Like literally that's the only <laughs> Christmas present I want, please. Like she wasn't a nudist, but like we shared a bathroom and her bath- the bathroom was next to her master. So she would just like walk, you know. And I'm an only child, so there wasn't anybody else around. And I was like, but Blake, please, seriously. But she never, she did that. She never, I never heard my mom say, I hate my butt. I hate my thighs. I hate this. Like there was, it was never, it was, I would like to lose weight. I really want to lose weight. I want to lose this weight. But it was never because I hate my body, which, you know, obviously was a huge gift to me as a teenage girl. And, you know, my grandmother was the same way. My aunt was the same way. And I think about what, like, the impact that had on me that I did, I, I recognized the difference. Like, I knew I didn't want to gain weight because I saw the way they struggled with it. But, like, I didn't, it was never like, your body's not good enough as it is. There was a real, um, they walked they walked that line really well when I was growing up. Yeah, I don't remember my mom being obsessive about her body at all. And, I, you know, she tried to take care of herself and she you, you know, put makeup on and things like that. But I never heard sort of, I hate my nose. Or when I got to college, I remember seeing beauty rituals and hearing conversation that blew my mind. Yeah. It seemed so small. And I don't, I don't mean that to be ugly or critical, but that's how it felt to me coming from a family that did not prioritize physical beauty, I guess. So I'm I'm grateful to my mom for that too. And we try really hard here. We don't even talk about weight. You know, we just try to yeah. talk about being healthy. Why are you not eating this mom? Because I want to put something better than that in my body. I think yeah. that's not very good fuel. And um and I try also not to say like if you want to eat it, it's your decision. I just want you to understand that that's not good for you. Yeah. We just talk about like that's gonna make you feel crummy. You're gonna feel yeah. crummy, you're gonna feel cranky and I'll make you take a nap. So There you go. Well, and also the biggest impact for me, just on this whole body positive thing, the biggest impact for me in college, why I had like a massive influx of body positivity, despite the fact that there were girls with eating disorders and beating themselves up all the time all around me is because there were pale people. And I went to high school with people with literal tanning beds in their house. And for those of y'all don't know, I have red hair and very pale skin and everyone was tan in my high school, but there was like so many pale people at Transy. It was a revelation. In fact, that was probably the biggest source of body negativity for me growing up was not my weight. It was being pale because I was surrounded. Like tan was so super huge when I was in high school. Like I said, people had tanning beds in their homes and that was always so, like, it just it felt oppressive. So when I went to transient, there was, like, other pale people. Oh, it was amazing. And now I wear basically a burkini on the beach. So there you go. I don't feel bad about it at all. Oh, that's interesting. We really did go to school at a time when eating disorders were such an epidemic. I mean, people had, like, nicknames. Like, you could – it was – when I think back on it, I'm like, oh, my God. It was just flourishing, and none of us were doing anything about it. I remember it being so common for people to eat their food in a certain order. Yeah. So that when they threw up, they would know that they had eliminated everything from their stomachs. I mean, it was awful. And we weren't doing much about it. We really weren't. I mean, I remember trying to talk to a few people as an RA about it. But you also felt judgy doing that, right? Yeah. Because all of this is so difficult to talk about. It was almost like an intrusion to notice that in someone and try to be helpful about it. I really hope that we're doing better than that today. Well, and I, there was this, I had this perception and, you know, I feel, I feel like there's a a similar perception about 
opiate addiction right now, which it just felt like you can't beat it. Like it's just impossible to treat and it's impossible to beat it. And so especially it's just a periphery acquaintance or friend. It's like, well, what am I going to do? Like these disorders are impossible to cure. Like sort of we perpetuate those ideas that there are some things that are just so big and so hard. But that's not true. People beat this stuff every day. People beat opiate addiction every day. People beat eating disorders all the day. And that doesn't mean it's not hard. But putting out there is this insurmountable task I don't think does anybody any favors. Well, thank you very much, Julia, for bringing this up so that we could have a more robust discussion around it, because I truly never want to be perpetuating a culture that tells everybody they need to be losing weight all the time. Hell that no. is not what I believe at all. No, like like they can cancel The Biggest Loser tomorrow and I wouldn't be sad about it. Did they please, cancel The Biggest please Loser? Please do, in fact. I, I think know. they did, didn't they? I haven't seen it on in a while. That show is horrendous. It is horrendous. With love. So we're going to talk about sex next. Woohoo! I'm psyched. Do you want me to sing the song again? I won't sing the song again. I kind of want to, but I won't. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. We're going to talk about sex, baby. I can't stand it. Just one more time. Just had to get it off my chest one more time. Um, this is one of my favorite topics. I want to say this up front. I think there are three things in life people don't talk enough about enough with their kids or with other adults, which is sex, money, and eating. And we are kicking two out of the three today. Maybe we could wrap up with a quick conversation on how people spend their money. That'd probably make the show too long. We should do money next week because that's a really, that's a great one. It's really That important. is a good one. That is a good one. So I thought for the sex, for the sex talk, we should talk, start with the sex talks, whether we had them and how our parents talked to us about sex. What do you think? Sure. Okay. You may go first. You want to go first. I can go first because mine is very short because we did not. <laughs> I had a conversation with my mom um, late in middle school and said, are we going to have this discussion? And I could tell that it made her very uncomfortable. And she said, if you have any questions, you can ask me. And I thought, I'm definitely not going to be doing that <laughs> based oh on how God. this conversation has gone. And I do not mean this to be critical of my mom in any way, who I know listens to the show and I appreciate. And she taught me lots of things. But we did not have that conversation. So in another way, you and I are very different – Big shout out to Lisa. Lisa, this was Lisa's star turn as a mother. I brag on her all the time. I bragged on her when I was in high school. I bragged on her, like, you know, because sometimes you go through phases with your parents where you're like, in your 20s, you're like, they really messed that up. And by your 30s, you're like, you know what? No, they didn't. They did that right. This one consistently. Lisa was a rock star on sex talks. Okay, so I'm an only child. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was little. The I remember my sex talk vividly because my father, who I'm not sure had moved yet or was just in town, took me to see Look Who's Talking. Everybody remember Look Who's Talking? That movie is graphic. First of all, why was my father taking me to see that at like, I'm pretty sure I, I did the math when that movie came out and I was like maybe eight or nine, maybe seven. I was pretty young. So, of course, I came home and was like, what the hell was going on in that movie? What were those tadpole things? What was happening? 
do love Luke Who's Talking. It's a great movie. So I come home and I ask my mom this and she's like, okay, so we're going to talk about this. And she had these blue, I remember these like electric blue books with mustard yellow writing on the cover. And we talked about it all. We went through periods. We went through sex. We went through pregnancy. We talked about all the things. And I've the only thing I remember from that conversation is learning about periods and vividly thinking, I wish I did not know this. Like, I remember feeling like, oh, something has changed now. I wish I did not know this. I don't think I was too young. I just think, you know, it's a heavy thing to learn as a girl. Like, it feels like this, like, creeping storyline coming for you. Anyway, so I learned about that. But that was definitely not the end of it. We had a very open consistent constant conversation about sex in my household um my mom's the big famous story is i came home one time from school and somebody been talking about blowjobs and i said what's a blowjob <laughs> my mom told me and i said um that's so gross and she said you'll do it one day discuss that's lisa's famous famous okay story. so i did ask my mom what a blowjob was because mm-hmm. i heard about it at school too and she told me what it was and i said why would anyone do that <laughs> and she said I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Both. And let me just tell you something. Both conversations. Accurate. Thank you. Okay. So so we talked about, and I remember my mom always saying, like, we watched a lot of romantic comedies when I was growing up. I was sort of addicted. I was a little boy crazy. And I remember my mom telling me repeatedly, like, it is not like it is in the movies. You need to know that. It just isn't. Oh, that's good. Um, Which was really good. And so I was super Southern Baptist in high school. I wore my virginity very proudly. So I like I I we didn't like have a con- talk about it a ton when I was in high school, but I got this boyfriend, my first real boyfriend who I hung out with all the time. And my mom was like sort of always in my grill. Like I was not allowed to go. First we were allowed to go in my room. We had to keep the door open and then she was like, "I changed my mind. You're not allowed to go in your room." <laughs> I had to stay out where she could see us. Um and my the story I will never ever forget is we told her we were going to go to the dogwood trail please so we definitely went back to his house and started making out and all of a sudden we hear this and i'm like oh my god so we come downstairs it's my mom and this is what she says hi y'all we just saw that you hadn't left yet and we thought it would be fun for us all to go together we wanted to go with you and go look at the dogwood trees so smart because it wasn't like i know what you're doing it was just like i am paying attention do not think i'm not like, I remember her, I remember standing in that doorway and feeling like she knows what's going on. Like, I, she, I'm not going to be able to get away with this. Like, my mom was very good about, like, if I catch you, you will be in worse trouble than if you confess. And I am paying attention. Like, there was no ostrich moments with Lisa. Like, Lisa was paying attention. So, um, thank God, maybe because that intervention, maybe because of a lot of reasons, I never had sex with that boy in high school who was a little terrible. And then um, I met Nicholas in college. My mom used to, like, consistently bugged me, like, have you had sex with him yet? Have you had sex with him yet? Like, she knew it was coming, I think. And she was like, I just want you to be prepared. I want you to make sure you have what you need, blah, blah, blah. Like, very open about it. Um, Definitely told her, like, the next day that we'd had sex. And so um, just a very open conversation, super cool. Like, not mom friend. It really wasn't like that. It wasn't like Mean Girls. Like, she was not, like, encouraging me. She was always just like, I'm your mom. I need to know what's happening. I am paying attention don't think you're going to get in away anything. And if you are doing something that I think is fine and safe, like, let's just make sure you're doing it safely. Like, it was very, she really walked that line very, very well. And then I've been in that loving relationship since I was 19 years old. So that's definitely going to color my perspective on the rest of it. Well, I did not talk openly with my parents about anything. And they really, I always felt a sense of trust from them. I always felt like, 
in high school, I wasn't interested and they knew it. Mm. Um, I had boyfriends. Lucky, lucky them. them. Let's all, all say a quick prayer that we're like that. Please don't let my kids be interested in sex in high school. Amen. Okay, good. I mean, I had boyfriends and, and we were, you know, I didn't have sex with them, but I did a lot of other things with them and it was fine, but it was never my focus. Yeah. And I just always felt this sense. And I don't know where I got this, probably from some combination of church and the people around me without explicitly talking about sex, I got the sense that basically when you're ready to do that, you're taking on a huge responsibility. Yeah. And I wasn't interested in that responsibility. And I really wasn't interested in that responsibility until mid-20s. I just kind of knew that I had plenty going on in my life. I was busy. I was, you know, marginally interested in relationships. I pretty much always had a boyfriend. But it just wasn't a focus for me. And I don't know why that is. I think about that all the time. How could I replicate that lack of interest in myself <laughs> while still maybe discussing this more openly than it was discussed with me? Because my kids are in a different environment altogether than I was growing up. That's so funny. Again, exact opposite. I was obsessed. I thought about boys. I wanted to be in love so badly. Like, I mean, the first line of my wedding vow literally was, I've always been boy crazy. Like, I was obsessed with boys. I was obsessed with kissing and making out and doing all that. I mean, I didn't want to have sex. I knew that because I was in a Southern Baptist church that told you that was that was for marriage. End of story. You were a bad person if you had sex before marriage. Let's not dress it up and like dress up the message they sent any more than it needs to be. That's what they said. You're a bad person if you have sex before marriage. And so that's a sin. So that that kept me out of that section. But I was definitely like pushing the lines and definitely just totally and completely obsessed with it. But I guess it was because, you know, and maybe my mom senses it wasn't out of a sense of desperation or need. It was just like I wanted to acquire it. Like I just wanted to be in that. I wanted to be a grown up with a boyfriend. I wanted to be like the girls. I was watching romantic comedies. That's my first advice to you. Do not let your daughters ever, ever watch romantic comedies. They are Satan. That's how I feel about it. I think that's probably true. I, You know, for me, I wasn't sure for the longest time if I wanted to get married. I never uh, part of the reason that I did not want to have sex, that sense of responsibility. I was positive for most of my life that I did not want to have children. That is so interesting. So we just came at it from totally different Yeah. I was like, I will get married. I will have all the children immediately. That is the thing I'm doing. While I was in the Southern Baptist Church as well, my church was led for my formative years by a pastor who had been Catholic and left the Catholic Church because he thought it was too dogmatic. And so we had this very... A weird mix of things like we did some Advent things, even though that wasn't part of the Southern Baptist tradition. I almost never heard about sex at church. The only thing I ever heard about abortion at church was that it's our responsibility as Christians to be good to people who've gone through a trauma like that. Oh, wow. So I was just in a really different version of Southern Baptist than mostly exists. We did hear a lot about alcohol, right? You weren't supposed to drink. But oh, that's then, funny. As an adult, I understand that pretty much most of the people I went to church with do drink. They just <laughs> didn't talk about it openly. We didn't do it at church. Did so it was you, just an interesting mix of things. Did you sign a True Love Waits card? Yeah, I did sign I a totally True Love did, Waits card. I totally did, and I still have it. I'm going to post it on Instagram. But you know what? That was not with my church. It was the... um 
religious organization at my high school that oh, did that. Oh, Lord. Yeah, we signed it. And one time I went to a, a pro-choice march, and a girl was burning hers on the mall, and it was amazing. I wish I'd had You mine. still have your True Love Waits card? Definitely still have it. I will get it out and take a pic so everybody can see it. Yeah, definitely still have my True Love Waits card. So then I'm in this loving relationship. And so then I think that's a totally different exploration of sex inside. So I've been married for almost 15 years. Um, spoiler alert, we had sex before we got married. So we've been having sex a long time. And I think that's like a totally different exploration of sex and what it means as a woman. In some ways, it's like a safer space to, to think about it and work on it. But in some ways, I feel like the stakes are so high. There's some exploration I could have done like through casual sex as well. Is that a weird thing to say? I think about that too. So... Uh, Chad is the first person and only person that I have slept with. We started having sex when we were, when I was 24, very, very early in our relationship, which is such a weird thing, right? To have gone your whole life with this true love waits mentality and then being like, well, they were like, you'll work. I met you a couple days ago. No, I'm not saying it's a couple days. I just think that's funny. You seem great. Um, it, what it was for me, honestly, is that I knew that I was ready for that. I don't know what it was. It was just like a day in my life when I thought, nope, I'm here for that. And I don't know if this is going to be anything or not, but. Either way, this is the thing I'm going to do. So so I have also only explored within the context of one very loving relationship. And I do think about, like, what what does that miss in life? Yeah. Um, and I also think about the benefits of it. And, again, I think all the time about why did I make those decisions. And I have no idea. I, I really don't. Can I say some for I'm going to answer that. But first, I have to tell you a funny story. I have a friend who um, went to Vegas and was like, I'm going to have a one night stand. That is a thing I'm going to do. I'm going to check it off my list. I'm going to have a one night stand. So she has a one night stand and he won't stop calling her. And now they're married. And it's my favorite story. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> and then also, she like, this is the thing I'm going to do. And she was like, I kept saying, like, no, you're my one night stand. And now they're married. And they have two children. And it just cracks me up. I love that story so much. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know throwback call back to the first segment of the show a huge part of the there are two halves of my body positivity and one is my mom and the other half is i've been in this relationship since i was 19 with a person who thinks that like i always say nicholas has um body dysmorphic disorder only when he looks at me like i could be like nasty in the flu and he's like you're so beautiful you're amazing your body is amazing so i've been listening to that for 15 over 15 years like so i think that whatever you know mess the culture exercised on me maybe in high school despite my mother's best efforts were was pretty much just wiped out by being in this relationship and I would not I think that is hugely positive we were with one of our really good couple friends um this weekend and we were talking about like being a curious person and how you have to be vulnerable to say like I might not know this or I might have gotten it wrong and this this couple has also been in a relationship since college been married together been together for a million years and I said honestly like I have to just like give props to this relationship. I think it's a huge part of why I'm comfortable, like my confidence, why I'm comfortable being um, vulnerable, saying I'm wrong, trying new things is because I know no matter what, I've got this guy who I've been with for a million years who loves me and I love him. And that's just a, such a not, like a strong foundation, um, especially I think as a woman, because for better or for worse, we're told like your worth is in a relationship. And so I do think about that a lot. I think about, like, I chose the relationship. I didn't stay in it because of that. 
But it's I, I'm not going to, you know, just be ignorant of the messages we send women and how that probably exercised in my life being in this loving, committed relationship. And I think those those messages definitely play out in sex. And so being in this relationship with someone who liked my body, loved my body, loved me the way I was, was very was awesome and accepting. Like, I mean, that's a huge gift I just stumbled into. I think that's true for me, too. I think I stumbled into it in a different way. And after some different experiences, because it wasn't like I never dated or never had any kind of interactions with people, you know, I shared with Sarah, I have, I have a life experience that's very similar to the Aziz Ansari and Grace situation, um, that I don't feel anything in particular, like I don't feel traumatized by it at all. I, I feel more like it was a surreal thing than, than something that hurt me. Uh, I also don't take anything away from anyone who's had that experience and felt traumatized because that's the point. We're all coming at this with a really, really different perspective. Mm -hmm. There will be people who discount everything you and I have to say about sex now upon learning that we each have had one, you know, full-blown sexual partner, right? Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I don't think that our perspectives should be discounted. I also don't think our perspectives are correct or more righteous than someone else's. No. Um, I don't, I, I do have times when I think, gosh, I probably, I probably missed some things, you know, I'd probably yeah. be a better partner to Chad if I had explored a little bit more. I think my life might be different if I had. So I'm not uh, convicted in any way that I took the right path on this issue. I, and I never really, Putting aside the fact that I signed a True Love Waits card, I never really <laughs> intended for that to be – to mean anything other than I'm, I won't do this until I'm ready for the responsibilities that could come along with it. Right. Well, and, you know, let me say now that I've built up this – the positive parts of this relationship. Like, it has not always been easy. Nicholas has no memory of this. I asked him about it when we were going to talk about the show. But there was, like, a time when we first got married when I was like, you know what? I don't want to have sex anymore. Now, he doesn't remember this. I feel like it was like a year. It was probably like three or four weeks. But I really was like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to think about it anymore. And I certainly don't want to do it anymore. Because there was this just so much. There's so much pressure in any sort of relationship. Or honestly, I feel my single friends talk about this too. There's a pressure to be having sex. There's a pressure to be having good sex. There's a big pressure to having adventurous sex. There's a pressure to be having sex often. And it's just, everybody's got it, you know, we're all supposed to be having sex every day, simultaneously orgasming, likely in those dumb romantic comedies. And it's just exhausting. It's exhausting in the best case scenario inside a loving relationship. And I just... it wears me out. And so like, I definitely like hit a wall in our relationship where I was like, you know what? I don't do this anymore. Like I just, my bet my life is like easier and less stressful without this additional thing. Everybody's putting pressure on me to do. And so I'd like to not think about it anymore. I feel like probably most people get to that point in sex with sex. We had a very um, difficult period early in our marriage as well. It it is about the time that I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which is not something I intend to talk about multiple times in every episode, but here I am. Because <laughs> I was going through a time when everything was painful. Mm. I mean, washing my hair was painful. Wearing a suit jacket to work, as I felt I had to do, was painful. And so I just didn't... It, it 
it didn't even enter the sphere of my thinking as something that I might do because I was so kind of consumed with my body not working the way that I felt my body should be working and not working in ways that were even functional some days. And it was a really hard time in our marriage. And I don't think that I fully understood what sex meant in our relationship until Mm -hmm. we weren't having it for a long time. And I think that's the hard line to walk. And, you know, what I wanted to talk about is clearly there are messages that we have all sent to each other and that women in particular hear, which is you owe it to your partner to have sex, even if it's bad sex. You owe it to if it's the sex is no longer good, you've got to let him finish. Let's just be honest. Like that's definitely a message I heard and thought that was important. And that there it's that like that sex is an exchange instead of a conversation. I felt like that's what the messages we are clearly still receiving and something that the Aziz Ansari story really touched a sore spot and with regards to this entire thing, that this is not a conversation that is happening between two people, but this is a, an ex, like a transaction. And I think that women, the reason that so many women reacted strongly to that story, including myself, is because there's all, we've all had moments where we felt like, and I thought that, I thought the Ashley Ford exchange was even better about her friend who was like, well, you just lay there. You just go someplace else and you just lay there and get it over with because you love him. I mean, that's not, this is not like somebody tackled you from behind the bushes. This is something I think that women, the messages we get, which is you just, you know, it's just something you suffer through. I mean, think about the, how many pages and pages the jokes and stupid television shows could fill about women not wanting sex, men trying to get sex from women. And I'm talking about like you could fill books with just married people in pop culture that make these jokes, that have this exchange, that um, but this is just something you have to like get out of your wife and this is just something the wife has to suffer through. I mean, it is so disturbing when you really sort of it's like the like the fish in the water. We, we tell the story a lot, which is the the two fish are swimming along and the older fish says, hi, hey, boys, how's the water? And they say, what's water? Like, I think there's a I think the Aziz Ansari story gave everybody a moment where they looked around and thought, oh, my God, the water. I loved this article that our listener Megan shared from Lori Penny called We're Not Done Here. And she was writing about the Aziz Ansari Grace situation And she wrote this, sex is many things, but it is rarely simple. Mm. Contrary to the popular narrative that opponents of the Me Too movement have propagated, most women don't like to think of themselves as victims. Most of us would prefer the version of the story where we were in control the whole time, where the hurt and disappointment were our fault, because that way it's easier to own the horrible things that have happened to us and make sense Mm. of the way they make us feel about our own bodies and about sex in general. It's easier to smile and repeat the lines that are required of us every time we stand up and demand that women be treated with the bare minimum of human decency. We don't hate men. No, we don't hate sex. We're not like those angry, prudish feminists of the frightening fictional past with their burning bras and manskull necklaces, ready to castrate any passing politician who accidentally brushes the wrong knee. We are not fainting Victorian maidens. We don't hate sex. We love sex and we love men, okay? All of us love sex and all of us love men. All men, no matter how badly they behave, because that's what it means to be a good woman. It means loving what you're told to love, no matter how much it hurts you. 
Love is a huge, strange word, a word that stretches to contain all the silence, pain, and longing that crowd around the corners of your bed. To speak personally, yes, I love sex, but sometimes I also get angry at it and sometimes wish it did not have to hurt so much. That spoke to me. Oh, man, I'm crying right now. I got tears. That is so intense and so true. I just... I feel like we are in the middle of a serious moment with regards to women. Obviously, I'm sort of simplifying this greatly. But I do feel like, and as a woman who has proudly claimed feminism and, you know, openly challenged the patriarchy and misogyny, it feels so great to have this conversation more openly because I feel like in so many ways as a feminist, I've been shouting into the dark for the past 20 years as I grew older with regards to sex, with regards to beauty, with regards to diet, with regards to all these things. I felt like I would get around a group of women and be like, this is bullish. And they'd all go, oh, no, it's not that bad. What are you talking about? What are you complaining about? And for the first time in a long time, I feel like there's a national conversation where women are going, no, no, this is bullish. This is not we're not going to do this anymore. And it's so amazing. And it's so empowering. And I think you know, sex is the in in many ways the final frontier because it is the most intimate interactions between men and women, and there's so much at play. And you know, standing up and saying, "No, I don't want to be. I don't want to go out of my body, and I don't want to be begrudging in this most intimate act that can be wonderful and can be you know spiritually and physically and emotionally and psychologically fulfilling." Is just so intense and I think really great. I also want to say, I think a really important component of this as we are both mothers is the way my sex life and the way I thought about sex changed after I had kids. Um, Mainly because, you know, my, my physical threshold of just being touched is not, not super high. Like, is pretty low. And so when I had kids, it really affected like the way I thought about sex because and whether or not I wanted to have sex because not just because I was tired, but because like I have people touching me. I don't really want to be touched anymore because I have a low touching threshold. <laughs> I have friends who get like whose kids can just hang on them and they are oblivious. And it just watching the kid hang on them drives me crazy. Um, and there's an amazing, we're big Esther Perel fans. In fact, this is how I got Beth hooked on this podcast because my friend Laura sent me a really amazing one in which it was a lesbian couple, which I think is super, I think there's so much to be learned about sex from, especially as straight people, by talking to our friends in the LGBT community because when you take out the gender dynamics, you can really examine it from a new angle. And this was a couple where one of the couples was, one of the women was a primary breadwinner, one one of the women was a stay-at-home mom. And like hearing them talk about it that way in that totally new framework was so helpful and illustrative like she says like to the stay-at-home mom like the person that's been gone the primary breadwinner wants to connect with you but what you really want to do is connect with yourself and I thought that was like so helpful so informative I mean that I thought was such a great way to think about it and I think that's totally true in sex and I think particularly with women women are not given permission in sex to connect with themselves and to figure out on their own what makes them feel good, 
You know, masturbation to women is like a totally different universe. People don't want to talk about. I've had conversations with girlfriends when you bring that up and they look at you like you've grown a third head because women don't think that's a thing women do or should do or it's okay to do. And I think that has to be a part of this conversation. It can't just be about the messages we send women about sex with men or with each other or with other people at all. Like, I think there needs to be a much bigger open conversation with sex about women and masturbation and eliminating the stupid, ridiculous, negative messages we send women about that, because there has to be a connecting to yourself, too. That has to happen, I think, in order to have this conversation and to think through it in new ways. The most illuminating thing that I've heard Mm -hmm. Estelle Estelle Perel say, and that's a that's a big um, award because she has said so many things that have really opened my mind up. But the most illuminating thing she has said for me is that sex is not a thing you do. It's a place you go. I love that. So good. So to your point, I think you need to start going alone, right? Mm -hmm. To start to figure that out. And I think you need to go back alone sometimes because you have a different experience of a place when you're there by yourself. I also think it's a good reminder that not every act of physical intimacy needs to be progressive. Mm -hmm. It is so frustrating to me and lots of other women, so much so that it's almost trite to say, and and that's frustrating too. But, like, we don't need to have sex to make out, to do whatever, right? Like, you can stop along the way. You can take a detour. Mm -hmm. This, I think, gets to consent too. Like, if you think about this as being on a trip with another person, Then you say, like, do you want to take this exit or not? Do you need to stop and have a bathroom break? Do you need to like there are like lots of different analogies that I think are really helpful when you start to think about this as going somewhere with someone instead of a transaction. The whole language of the fact that men get sex and women give it like all of these things are so transactional which Mm -hmm. is why i think we're here that's why it's become exploitative even when no one means it to be because unconsciously that is our framework yeah and that's so confusing and it makes the concept of selfishness so confusing that's something i struggled with tremendously during pregnancy and right after i gave birth am i being selfish that i don't want to do this You know, when I was breastfeeding, I would think to myself, am I being selfish that I don't want to have sex right now? And then I'm like, Beth, you are like using your body to keep a human alive. Yep. I'm not sure what's less selfish than that, but it's still like operating in the background, even without direct pressure from Chad. It was operating in the background. Right. Am I being selfish about this? And then I think that we have this whole conversation about orgasm that brings up things about selfishness that just entirely misses the point of the experience, at least from a woman's perspective. Here's what I'd like to say to you and every other woman. As an only child, um, I have a different relationship with selfishness. (laughs) Here's what I'd just like to tell everyone. If you are thinking about how this decision plays out for another person, if you are worrying about another person and your decision— For me, that is by definition not selfish. Selfish is when you only think about yourself. So if you're sweating other people, you're not being selfish. You're just making a choice that other people might not like. You maybe just are setting boundaries. And I would like to encourage everyone to do that. Like I've had to think about, I have to think about being selfish because I'm an only child. So sometimes I literally just don't think about other people. That is me being selfish. I can own that. But like, man, if you're sweating how it plays out for other people, that's not being selfish. You're literally worried about somebody else. You can't worry about somebody else and be selfish at the same time. Yeah, it's just so hard. I I objectively 
knew that. And I certainly know it now. I feel like I'm an expert on boundaries now because I've worked so hard to have them. It's not intuitive for me. But when I think about um, just the fact that I have always been a hardwired people pleaser, that's that's the other thing, right? Sex is not like this hallway that's disconnected from the rest of your house. Mm-hmm. It is 100% about who you are, what's going on in your relationship, what you're, what's going on inside your head, what's going on inside the other person's head. It's often a way, I think, for those two things to meet when they don't otherwise. I mean, it's a really... It is complicated. It's just yeah, complicated. but we tell we tell women a very simple message, which is good girls make other people happy. And you have this thing that makes other people happy. So just let them take it. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's what we tell. That's the message you get is like you have this thing that's so easy. Right. It's just right there. Just let somebody have it like that's that's what makes them happy. You want them to be happy. So there you go. That's how you end up with women saying, Oh, well, I just thought that that's what you just lay there. Like, you just lay there and go to your quiet place and get it over with. Like, that whole get it over with phenomenon, struggle. Well, we give that message or the other extreme, right? Which is, it should be 100% about you and you should do all the things all the time with all the people. Yeah. And it should only feel amazing. And I'm not trying to say that in a pejorative way. I do think that is a that is a hard thing to sustain. Mm. And I wonder about the the thing that makes me most grateful for my limited sexual experience is that I wonder about what the pressure to constantly raise the bar would feel like if I had been out having really wild adventurous sex all through my 20s and 30s. Yeah. Yeah, that that part that's the part that really exhausts me. And also I just think that why we are talking about how complicated it is. I don't think we give there is anywhere near the amount of discussion, particularly for women, about the role that hormones play in our lives, including in the conversation we had at the top of the show with how we eat and how we feel about eating and when we eat. Like, hormones are so, so huge. I'm a huge fan of a woman, uh, Dr. Alicia Vitti, and she has a book um, called – well, the app is called My Flow, and I can't remember the name of the book, but I'll put it in the show notes. And It's amazing, and she talks about, like, how – Differently, our brains work based on what our hormones are doing per week. And she, like, gives really great advice about, like, sex based on where you are in your cycle. It's just really, truly amazing to, to for someone to say, you feel like this is a really huge factor in how you're feeling and what you're thinking and what your energy are levels. And that's okay. So let's just talk about this openly and acknowledge that, you know, every health piece of nutrition and health advice are is basically based on men's bodies. And newsflash, our bodies are super different. And we don't talk about that either. Nope. Right? I mean, I I will say I don't, within my marriage, talk enough about how all of that's affecting me. Mm-hmm. Well, because Alicia Vitti's apple, apple sent an email to your husband. My husband gets the emails and will be like, heads up, this is what's going on this week. <laughs> Which I think is helpful. And actually, Chad signed up for those too. But I want to be able to say it myself. Yeah. You know, and I want to be able to have the language to do that and to also be able to say it without being apologetic but being open to me, I think that that would foster a different level of connection. And it's so it's an ongoing thing. Like I have to remind myself all like I still will get in the space where I'm like, wait, everything is wrong. Every single thing in my life is wrong and bad and I need to change it all. And I'm like, hold up, wait a second. Let me check my cycle. And I'm like, oh, no, wait, this is the day. OK, good. Like it just makes you feel so much less crazy The um I'll never forget Big Little Lies, the book that the 
HBO show is based on. The main character, Reese Witherspoon, that Reese Witherspoon plays in the television show, has this great like part in her book where she talks about like in a part in her cycle. She's like, I'm just a psychopath. I don't care. I just have to fake it. I have to fake it for like two whole days where I'm like, I hate all of you. I don't care if my kids cry or injured. I don't care if my husband is miserable. You're all terrible people. And I, I truly feel like a psychopath in my own head. And I just have to like fake it. And then it goes away. And all my book club was like, oh my God, that was my favorite part of the book. I thought that was just me. I thought I was the only one who like was a psychopath for two days. Not to perpetuate the stupid narratives about PMS and all that. That's not what I mean. But it really does play out on your brain. And it's just so helpful and nice when you feel like you're a little bit crazy for someone to be like, no, this is a thing that all people go through. And to recognize it just takes the power away from it. It's like so amazing. Yeah, I have at least one day a month and usually two when I just run. I want to run away. That is what plays out in my head. You could just get in your car and drive. Just drive. Keep driving. (laughs) This is, again, so reflective of our personalities. I don't want to run away. I want everyone else to go away. I will stay here in my house that I love. You all leave. That's so funny. Yeah, no, that's not me at all. I just think I could go somewhere. I don't have to know where I'm going. I don't have to tell anybody I'm going there. I just keep driving until I feel like it would be this would be a good place to stop for a while and do that. (laughs) No, I definitely want everyone else to leave. I'll stay. You all leave. Yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. It's all of you who are doing everything wrong, including how you're breathing. So you should go. My mom used to call it chewing razor blades. (laughs) Well, I wanted to mention um, our listener, Emma, who writes at The Wonky Peach, and she always writes beautifully and has really interesting things to say. So you should check her blog out. Wrote this really nice piece about the Aziz Ansari and Grace interaction in which she talked about how she kind of grew up watching Dawson's Creek. And that was her picture of sex, like this super connected, intimate, staring into each other's eyes (laughs) sort of moment. And then then becoming an adult and being involved in sexual relationships and confronting the fact that you do sort of have this inner monologue that drowns everything else out that is saying, you should try to do this. You should try to do that. Like, you, like all the shoulds, basically, that come up um, whenever you're in, in a sexual relationship. And I thought that was really well said and something that um, hit home with me also. Well, I think this has been... A great conversation. We're just scratching the surface here. This has been great because we have like six additional show topics from this one conversation. Yeah. And I will say that I'm kind of exhausted from the vulnerability of this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I think that's part of the point, right? Like if we can't start to just discuss these things openly and honestly, what is Me Too about otherwise? Mm -hmm. All right. Next up, we're going to share something to leave you inspired for the rest of the week. So I found this um, really great section in Tim Ferriss's new book, The Tribe Tribe of Mentors, from Terry Crews. And it reminded me a lot of the conversation we had last week with regards to the you have what you need recovery for non-addicts. So I thought I'd share it. Uh, the question Tim Ferriss asked him is, what advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about enter the real world and what advice should they ignore? And he says, ignore any advice that tells you you are going to miss something. Every mistake I have ever made in business, marriage, and personal conduct was because I thought if I didn't do or get this now, it was never going to happen. It's like most clubs in LA. The trick is to keep the line long at the door while the club itself is empty. The aura of exclusivity is really code for bad atmosphere. To do what you desire to do, you have all you need. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Nuance Life. We'll be on Pansy Politics on Friday and Tuesday and then back here next Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Women make up almost half the overall workforce in the U.S., and they own close to 10 million businesses. 70% of moms with kids under age 18 work and are the breadwinners of 40% of those households. In the new podcast, Women's Work, author and veteran podcaster Tish Oxenrider, whom you might know from The Simple Show and being a guest on Pantsuit Politics, asks women from all walks of life who do all sorts of work their stories. More than a business show, this is a story show, a podcast that sings the often unsung praises of the millions of women who make our world a better place. This show is for women, for a boost of encouragement that our place in the world does matter. It's for men to remind them that half of the human race is doing good work right alongside them. And it's for our sons and daughters to inspire the next generation of what's possible. Here is a short clip from the premiere episode in which I am a guest. It was wonderful to talk to Tish, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. And so you're one of four city commissioners, then. Is that what I hear? Yes. And you guys, you say you steer the ship. Does that basically mean you work pretty closely with the mayor in making just everyday decisions about the city? We help form the budget. So we decide where the money goes. We have to approve budgetary expenditures in the budget itself. Um, We have to approve all hirings and firings. But, like, we're not interviewing people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He's doing that. And we're not making detailed decisions about the Christmas parade, stuff like that. He's doing the the detail work. We are the big picture team saying, where do we want the city to go? Is this zoning decision the right decision? Where do we want more development? What do our citizens, are our citizens engaged? What neighborhood needs help? That kind of stuff. I really love small towns, like super duper really love them, and it, which is why we live where we live outside of Austin. The whole time you lived in D.C., were you wanting and planning to move back to Paducah? Like, was that always the plan? No, it wasn't always the plan. I think I thought in my, you know, when you're a teenager, the world is outside wherever you are. And I thought the world was outside Paducah. And I went away to college at Transylvania University in Lexington. And then I moved with my husband to North Carolina, where he was going to law school at Duke. And then I always wanted to live in D.C. My best friend from middle school remembers our trip there in eighth grade and me standing at the top of Arlington National Cemetery and saying, I'm going to live here one day. Like, I love that place. That place has a hold on my heart. Not as big a hold as Paducah, but a, a hold. I love that town. But I went there and I thought what I tell people is when you live in Washington, D.C., the first question people ask you is, who do you work for? And when I moved back to Paducah, the first thing people asked me are, oh, do you have any kids? Where do you go to church? <laughs> you know, and I just I love politics. But I think the the perspective on politics from D- in D.C. is not one that I totally share. I think that as someone of the Democratic persuasion, I think more Democrats need to move the heck back to whence they came. Because I think the siloing of ourselves into political groups that never disagree with each other is very dangerous and problematic. It's the passion I bring to fancy politics while I sit down with Beth, who's a different political persuasion of me, twice a week. I just think that's really important. I think that, you know, living in a small town, not just because of political reasons, although I do live in a conservative area, is just really positive. You know, I always quote Sister Wives, and I know it sounds weird, but follow (laughs) me here. There's a part of Sister Wives where they say, you know, we believe that this polygamy and having sister wives rubs our rough edges off because you have to confront your jealousy and you have to confront your frustration. And like, there's a part of me that like, I get what they're saying there. 
that's what I love of small town life. Like it rubs your rough edges off. You can't avoid people that get on your nerves. Like you can't avoid people who disagree with you politically. You are going to run into people all the time that maybe aren't exactly who you would choose to spend every moment with. And it's awesome. I mean, it makes you a better person and it makes you realize that human beings are beautiful and complex and crafting an environment in which you are surrounded by people that you only agree with or that make you comfortable all the time is really maybe not the best outcome all the time. And I think it's such a sharp contrast to how we can be online sometimes, you know, where you can curate your Twitter feed to to just be people you agree with. Listen, my Facebook feed is interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole topic, Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm really curious, and I'm sure people are wondering as they listen. 2016 brought out a lot of women for the first time interested in politics and running for office. And, you know, you've mentioned this before, and I know I've seen this, where there's some statistic where the number of women running for local government skyrocketed after um, this last presidential election. Yet it sounds to me like this was not what motivated you, like you have always wanted to do this. But was there something about the most recent election that fueled this fire in you? I mean, I think that for me, I was tending that fire before the culture caught up, I guess is what I would say. I have always been passionate about women in politics. In fact, Pansy Politics originally was an idea of like, I was just going to interview all my friends awesome women working in politics. That was sort of my original idea for the show. And I thought, uh, I don't want to do this. I'd rather just talk to one person. And luckily, Beth popped into my life. The quote I keep going back to, I was listening to um, Sister Joan on Oprah's Super Soul Conversation. And she said, look, it's not that men are bad. Obviously, I don't think that. I live in a house with four men. I'm raising three sons. It's that, you know, we're facing every battle and every problem with one hand behind our back if we only have men around the table trying to find the solution. Women bring an important perspective. They represent half the population. And studies have shown over and over again that no matter their political persuasion, they approach politics very differently. And I think that that is a perspective we very much need to solve the problems we're facing in the 21st century because I think we'll get better solutions when you have a more diverse set of people around the table trying to solve them. That's always been my sort of passion. And as I just think that women do politics differently and that it's a perspective very much needed, I think that as you watch the wave of sexual harassment and sexual assault claims roll over every industry and that's now just starting to break inside Washington and state legislators, you see that there has been one way of governing and doing politics for far too long. It doesn't mean that that way is always bad. It just means that, well, sexual harassment is always bad. But, you know, it doesn't mean that that approach that men bring to the table is always bad. It just means that it can't be the only one. We need more perspectives so we're not missing things. And, you know, I think that's always sort of been why I was passionate about it and why I believe that the more women running for office, the better. The more women voices around the table, the better. You know, I was elected with a friend of mine, the mayor, beat an incumbent, my friend Brandy Harless, and she and I did a merge together. And it's been amazing to do this together, to have somebody running for office. And, you know, we so often have conversations where we're like, we don't want to do it like this. Like, why do people act like this is the only way to do this or solve this problem or approach this issue? Like, are we crazy or are we just seeing like a totally different universe that everyone else is ignoring? 
That happens so often. And I think that it's just really, really needed right now. So you have two podcasts and your city commissioner. And I would bet a lot of people are wondering, okay, how do you juggle this? Is this a full-time job? What does your day look like? Can you walk me through a little bit of what a typical day in your life might look like with all of these hats you wear? Well, so city commission is part-time in theory. (laughs) We're paid part-time. Let's put it that way. And we used to, but we no longer have an office at the city hall. So it's not like I go into city hall every day. We have meetings in Tuesday evening about every two weeks. Um, We have additional responsibilities as far as events, community, outreach, stuff like that. But it sort of ebbs and flows as far as the time commitment to city commission. But it's flexible, right? You know, I pick when I can sit down and respond to the emails for the most part. Pantsu Politics and the Nuance Live, since it's been you know, used to when we started, it was like late Sunday nights and when we could squeeze it in, particularly because Beth was working full time. But since the success of the show has taken off and we have a book deal, we're very excited about we'll be writing a book for the next year. It's become a much bigger time commitment and more of a full time job. So now my days really look you know, very, very different than they did just a year ago. Well, a year ago, I was knocking on doors most of the day. (laughs) (laughs) My family and I just moved to a new house where I have this big home office. I used to have a desk in my bedroom, which was sort of stressful because my work was ever present. So now I have this big, nice office. And so usually Monday through Friday, I send my boys off to school. My husband takes them to school. And then at nine o'clock, I take my two-year-old to preschool. And I come back to my office and I work two days a week. I go into my little recording studio I have in my new house that brings me so much joy. And I record episodes with Beth. And then other days I'm working on the book or working on city commission stuff or just doing the sort of day-to-day management of the podcast and our presence on the internet and social media and all that fun stuff. This is sort of embarrassing to admit, but I mean, I'm 36 years old and I think I've spent probably 36 months of my entire adult life working a nine to five job. It's just never been what I've done. (laughs) Even in DC, when I worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign, I had a lot of flexibility and I did advanced work where I would travel. But since I've been back in Paducah, I stayed at home for a while. And then I taught sort of part-time at the community college. I had a blog for a long time. Then I did social and still do some social media consulting for businesses around town. So I've just sort of crafted this work life situation in which it's really I can't tell you what every day is like, because every day, sometimes the city commission requires all of my attention. And sometimes my kids require all of my attention. And sometimes fancy politics requires all my attention. And so it's sort of like a day to day, sometimes hour to hour situation. Like, what am I paying attention to right now? What is vital but also important. But I wrote once on Megan Francis's blog that, you know, when you have another kid, people say, oh, your your heart expands. You know, you just you find additional love you didn't know you had. And I find that's true of work I really love in my life. I think people look at me and they're like, how are you going to do that? But I just I find the time because I love it. And it brings me such joy that, you know, it doesn't really feel like work. I just have, I have to remind myself like, oh, yeah, this is like this is my job. Subscribe to Women's Work wherever you listen to podcasts and also follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram at Women's Work Show. And also sign up for the email and you'll never miss an episode. Go to womensworkshow.com to sign up. Let's celebrate the hard, inspiring work of creative women. Let's Women's Work share their stories with you.